feel the need, the need for speed. He said, when you go to the racetrack, you don't ever eat until we're done. He said, I'll feed you afterwards, but we're never eating at the racetrack. He said, there's no time for eating. Don't ever, ever, ever let me catch you with anything. He said, we're working at the racetrack. We're eating on the way home. Well, first off, I'm a winner. That might have been my superpower. I was always winning. So the Sponics back on the rut and goes, uh, he's in the lead lap. And, and Rudd, who the hell is that? What is this shit, huh? You want me to work the pit and you drive? Fine, we'll try that. Welcome everybody to the Uncommon Deeds podcast. Tom Corbett, Justin St. Louis. Fine, we'll try that. We will try it. A lot of those conversations have been had, I bet, before. Huh. Yep. I'm guessing not with, they, my, not with my not with my crew because we just didn't make adjustments. We didn't we didn't do any of that thing. We just what's it got in it? I don't know. Okay, I'll drive. I feel like that's a real that's a real big bluff. I feel like most are probably not letting the crew chief get behind the wheel and try. Mm-mm. No. Nope. Though so I feel like. That would be fascinating to watch, that argument between Marcel and Marcel. Yeah, that would be good. Uh, I'd lo- I, would, I would pay $1 million to whatever I had to pay it to to see Pete Dudo get behind the wheel of Bobby Therrien or Phil Scott's cars. That would be phenomenal. <laughs> there's, a f- there's a few that could have had that. Boomer and Chipper, though I don't see Chipper getting in no. an argument like that. No. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, I don't know. I want a crew chief who's never driven anything. That's what I want. All right, asshole. You think it's so easy? You show me. Feel I'm like that's asking you. Please show me because I don't know how to do. It. I feel like that's a lot of the probably the street stock garage. Yeah. Yeah, I always love mechanics races because there's always a wad of smoking bent shit at the end of the race. You want me to turn the four way and you try? <laughs> you want me to use the one ton floor jack and pump it sixteen times to change the tire and you drive? All right. You want me to get the French fries and you try? Oh yeah. I'd take that trade. Well, you're a special case because you have brought your food with you in the car. So yeah, I did. I did do that. How you been, buddy? 
Oh, good. How are you? Yeah. Always busy. Tiny children doing stuff. Soccer started. School. Yeah, we've got gymnastics, which is just chaos. A lot of tumbling. Yeah. A lot of somersaults. It's really no different than the living room here at home. But yeah, it's uh, it's been good. I am not coaching soccer, which is good. Oh, yeah. I played soccer up to college and intramurals in college, but I feel like I'm too competitive of a person to coach that lower level. And I can fully appreciate the same with like kindergarten teachers in general. Like I can appreciate your abilities to continue on with a smile in the chaos. How do they do it? I am too much the stickler for details and I want to teach stuff. And I've seen it for a week, couple weeks now with soccer and that just, you don't have the attention spans. You don't have the, uh, the ability to listen and learn. So I'm just enjoying from the side, which is also fun. Watching is your kids are somebody else's problem for that hour. Yeah. Kind of. You know, I try to keep an eye on TJ because he is, he's a big boy. He's an unstoppable force. He is. Uh, I think last week he had five goals and three warnings about being too rough. Uh, and kids are bouncing your, off of him. Is your five-year-old going to get red carded? Thankfully, I think none of the volunteer coaches bring cards. So. <laughs> That helps. Two weeks in, I'm thankful I have not had to deal with an angry parent yet. But I honestly think it's probably going to come. There was one moment, and not to completely sidetrack this, there was one moment, kids are bouncing off him. He's throwing some hands up, and I'm, TJ, hands down, hands down. But this one kid starts trying to push him back. Uh-oh. And he's pushing him, and he's pulling on his arm a little bit, and TJ's kind of letting it go, and he comes in, and he pushes him one more time, and they're coming towards me. And I saw TJ's face go from happy to annoyed. And he came in to push him one more time, and TJ threw a quick arm shiver to the right, and that kid ate a mouthful of dirt very quickly. Yeah. And inside, I'm like, Yeah. My boy. And then outside, I'm like, oh, where's that kid's parents? <laughs> TJ, TJ, calm, calm. Well, you're hiding like a thumbs up down here. <laughs> I didn't tell him afterwards in yeah. the car. <laughs> so, yeah, he extra, is. Uh, you get an extra cheesy breadstick at Pizza Hut tonight, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's always because kindergarten soccer is always Saturday mornings. Got to be there at 9 o'clock, which stinks because we always get the wet, dewy grass, Mm. just on a side note of annoyance. But so play a good hour and a half. You keep trying because I have all three kids are on the same soccer team. Whoa. Which is great. I don't think I could do it otherwise. 
Hmm. But if everyone tries, works hard, runs for the hour and a half, we get to hit Dunkin' Donuts after after the practice game. All right. Because it's all one day. Kindergarten doesn't have practices in this league, so it's you get there at 9, you practice from 9 to 9.30, and then game from 9.30 to 10-ish. Wait, is it a real game? It's like, kindergarten I mean, are they keeping game. score, or is it no. everybody run this direction? Everyone, It's everyone running around, and there's balls yeah. flying, and sure. I'm trying to keep score in my head, not oh, telling other keeping, parents yeah. that I'm keeping score. I see. You're over there with a clipboard. <laughs> Sweatband on here. On then, your like, forehead. the last 20 minutes, they do, like, soccer freeze tag and right. sharks and minnows. And yeah, yeah. I get annoyed because it seems like a waste of soccer practice time. But I get it. You got to keep the kids happy and entertained. And mm-hmm. An hour and a half is a long time on their attention span. So that's, a, that's like a year and a half yeah. for a kid. So yeah, that's what that's what we're doing. We're doing soccer for the Corbett's right now. Mixing in with the hectic end of the golf season and with rain for you. Yeah, which is it's not great. We've had some washouts that keep washing out. Mm. Trying to figure out how to fix that, but it's also like it forces me to <laughs> take a little bit of a break cuz there's just a bunch of stuff I can't do cuz it's so wet. So that's yeah. actually a little nice. Can't mow mud. I've had people try. <laughs> <laughs> I think I sent you a picture in the spring. You did, yeah. Oh, boy. So, yeah, a lot going on. Mixed with getting ready for the big live show. Yeah. We got lots, I mean, lots of positive feedback from that announcement. And... um there are, I guess I haven't really thought about it until I'm saying it out loud, but there are people who have commented and said they're going to go to the Milk Bowl because of the show, which is kind of humbling. That's pretty cool. I like to take that as sarcasm and not someone's true feelings. No, I don't does that know. Make me a ba- <laughs> does that make me a martyr? He's yeah, clearly. I, just... I want it to be that they're joking around, but look at the lineup we got. And there could be surprises still to come. Yeah. yeah. Bobby, Robbie, Brian, and Nick. Right? That is our confirmed guests so far. Like, literally, we can use their first names, and you know who we're talking about, which is sweet. Like, they're literally household names, like Dale or Kale or Richard or something like that from the cup days back in obviously it's a smaller scale. This is our own little world here in the Northeast, but you know who we're talking about. So I don't know. It's the whole thing is pretty cool. And I'm super excited. I know you are too. And there's a lot of moving pieces behind the scenes here. Stressfully um, excited. Yeah. My list is literally an entire page from top to bottom of things we have to do before, before the show. And I'm glad for that. It's it's pretty exciting. It is. And we're going to have some special stuff. We will have our merch there yep. for sale. And we are teaming with Alan Ward 
Yes. So when you see us in our area selling our shirts, we'll have some Al shirts there, vice versa, in his stand. You know, Al has been more than awesome about it because, you know, really, it's his it's his souvenir stand at Thunder Road. And us trying to bring stuff in and sell would undercut his business a little bit, right? So, And contrary to popular belief, we're not complete dicks. And we're trying to do everything the right way. So, you know, hopefully we're accepted back at some point yeah. to do this again or to try a different project or just so, you know, good word on how it goes so we can maybe go to some other places that here, here it went well. Hell yeah. I am way into that. Yep. We did the Thunder Road Champions show last. Was that last week? I don't remember. Yes. Uh, and we'll be doing a Devil's Bowl Champions show coming up as well. Um, their finale is this Sunday. Um, so I'll be heading down to talk with those champions. So I guess we can, as, as long as it doesn't rain out, which I, I haven't even looked at the weather and I have no idea. But um, hell, even if it does, I'll find a way to get them. We'll figure, we'll figure it out. Yeah. This week's show was an interesting one. And it is one, it's a shorter episode, just barely a little more than an hour. And that was done on purpose on our end because yeah. our guest sat for an hour in a neck brace, unable to move their head. And we did not want to be unthoughtful. I mean, it, yeah. It's, it's probably sucked for Josh son to sit there and just be upright and not be able to do anything, you know, and, and just stare straight ahead at a, at a computer screen. Um, yeah. And like I said in the, uh, in the show, his injury right now is not the reason why we had him on the show. This guy's won over a hundred features. Um, he is a freaking wheel man. And was having, apart from his four-cylinder days, the best season of his career up until taking another ambulance ride to Dartmouth and, uh, you know, flipping off turn one at, at Bear Ridge, which he's done twice now. And, Tom, I showed you the videos of him flipping the midget cars. And, I mean, the guy just, he's he keeps getting beat up. And without giving anything else away, you know, give this show a listen because – you know, what we got from Josh son was kind of the same thing that we got from Robin Wood, where there's like a fire still there. And Robin Wood stopped racing by his own choice. Josh son did not. And you can tell he wants it bad, but right now his body, I don't think is going to let him. Um, and that's two very different positions to be in for those two guys, but that uh, that fire in the belly is burns just as hot in each one of them. And uh, I hope that for Josh's sake, he is at peace with whatever the decision ends up being. Um, and if he never turns another lap, Jesus, he's had a great career. Um, and if he does turn another lap, he's going to end up in victory lane again. I know it because he, he's already done that. You know, his life flighted out in 2016 and 
ended up winning winning features in 2017 when he got back in. Yeah, it was a very raw conversation when it came to that because it is very fresh in his mind, and it's all stuff he is, you know, tussling with in his head every day as he's, you know, stuck at home all day. And I think I mentioned it in the episode. It's like with athletes, they say, don't make a decision on retirement right after your season ends. You know, the emotions, whether they're high, whether they're low, let them pass a little bit and then you'll get a better read on what you really want to do. And at this point, we don't even know if that'll be his choice or not. And I know, Justin, you got into it with him in this episode, not got into in a verbal fisticuff, but but in a conversation about, you know, whether he wants, whether it would be easier if that decision was taken out of his hands and whether he'd want that decision out of his hands. And I'm not going to tell you what he said, because that would kind of take away from the point of listening to the episode, but it was a very enlightening, like I said, raw conversation. Yeah. We're hoping for the best for Josh son. Um, this is a, a great interview, I think. And um, it's, it's, I have yet to cease to be amazed at some of the answers we get out of our guests um, on a, you know, a wide variety of topics, but um, we bob and they weave in a totally different direction. Um, it's, it's very cool to kind of get to see things from somebody else's perspective. Absolutely. So that's going to be a good conversation for you. Coming up, we're going to have story time with Justin St. Louis. But first, I want to thank all the people that help us bring this to you for free every single week. People like Barry Tile. Yes. And they have been with us. They're our longest sponsor we've had. And anything we've needed, they've been there to help us out and can't thank them enough for that. Besides did, that, did you see the kitchen that they installed? I did not. Week? Oh my gosh. It's awesome. I was going to say, besides that, they do great work. Yeah. You know, I'd like to think that we pride ourselves on if we are going to have a sponsor, we have to believe in what, they're selling what they're bringing to the table. Yeah. We're not going to take someone's money to peddle crap just for the sake of taking their money. That's right. That's right. We're not selling crap. This stuff is awesome. And as you, as you started to say, I went to the Barry tile page to see the, uh, on Facebook to see what it was that I was talking about. And then I see that I already liked these posts, not knowing that I had like, I think we joked about it in one of the recent episodes. It's kind of one of our hobbies is to look at their Facebook page and just scroll through stuff. That's how you know we're getting old. Yeah, that's right. It's a very dad thing to do. Uh, And they're awesome. Yeah. Check them out 
on the Facebook page. Go see them in person. I know Justin and I, hopefully this winter, when we both have a little more time, we're making making a trip to the showroom. Yeah. Um, it's geographically hard for us to get to Barry. I think I've been to Thunder Road three times this year, and you once twice. Or twice. Yeah. So it's not it's not an easy trip for us to get over there. Um, but if you are in central Vermont, um, head down to the South Barry Road and stop in the showroom and say hi to Dave Clark and the gang down there at Barry Tile. Yes, sir. Also, we have if you're listening to this the day it comes out. You got just about a week and a half to get $500 off a standalone generator. Bushy's generator sales and service. And Ben actually told us that this ad has worked. I'm not going to give details, but this, this ad has worked more than once. And um, there's some happy customers out there with generators that they saved $500. Sound the horn. Me, 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 me. I gotta get. I gotta get the actual sound alarm on the. You gotta. Put, I have yeah, plenty of buttons the there. I could do that. Yeah. And not sound stupid. But can you get that in there for the milk bowl show? I bet I can. Okay. Every time Brian Hoare takes a drink. <laughs> pew, pew, pew. Anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you got yeah. Nick up there too. Oh yeah. A potential mystery guest that also enjoys an adult beverage. It's going to be, that would be a lot of sirens going off. Yeah. (laughs) Well, anyway, get a generator, (laughs) right? And then get yourself a nice custom shirt from After Dark Custom Designs. Yeah. Hunter Garduno, who has won some races in spite of himself. Dirt and asphalt. Yeah. It's all wiped up now. Huh? Yeah. But he's still, he's still racing. Um, he's a, he's a bit of a wheel man. Um, and a good dude and a supporter of the show. And and we thank him. He's been on a 16 week run with us actually. With two different businesses. Yeah. VT fire was with us for eight. And now after dark custom designs has been with us for eight. And um, I'm sure the door is open for more. So um, thanks to Hunter for his support. And um, go get yourself some apparel, get a generator, get some flooring. You'll be in good shape. Just a great weekend right there. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you to all our sponsors for helping us bring this show to you, like I said, every single week for free. That's free, folks, and we're very excited. We have a new sponsor coming on next week. If you fancy yourself a bit of a sleuth, you might have been able to figure out who it was based on posts we have made over the last week. We've got another sponsor coming on board just for the live show that we're super excited about that we'll tell you about probably next week. So big things coming and there's still more room for more businesses as we're continuing to expand. We have the new sports order podcast. 
That is every Thursday morning that comes out with myself, Sterling Pingree. We're uh, still tweaking and really honing in. It's going to be a lot of Cowboys and Patriots talk. Me being the diehard Cowboys fan, Sterling being the Patriots fan, and then we'll hit some also some big stories in the NFL. But we're really going to hone in a little bit there. Got an unbiased compliment on that show, too, by the way. We did, yeah. which very appreciative. And thank you to everybody that's jumped on, like that page, and is giving it a try, giving it a listen. Keep it up, please. Share. But you can get in on that. You can get in on this podcast. We're going to have some YouTube stuff coming, including our live show. We're hoping it will be up on YouTube probably a couple weeks, give or take, after we record it. Because we want to give the podcast the opportunity to run a bit before the video comes out. But that's going to come up. And if you want to be part of some of that media stuff that we're starting to delve into... Any of the things that I just mentioned, you can send us an email, uncommonmediavt at gmail.com, or you can message us on any of the socials as well. Mm-hmm. You said it. Now, without further ado, it is time now for story time. In our last story time segment, we talked about the Northern NASCAR circuit, which was a combination of the weekly tracks like Thunder Road, Catamount, Plattsburgh, Devil's Bowl, yada, yada, and others running up to five nights a week from 1971 through 78. This week, we'll discuss what came next, the NASCAR North Tour. As the new promoter of Catamount Stadium in 1978, Tom Curley saw the writing on the wall. Car counts were down, fan counts were plummeting, and the sizzle was basically gone. Thunder Road closed just six weeks into the season under new owner Tommy Calamiris, and the only other track that hosted more than a couple races was Oxford Plains Speedway. Weekly racing was dying fast. So for 1979, Curley and partner Ken Squire devised a new plan, using business models like the American Speed Association in the Midwest, or even the NASCAR Winston Cup Grand National Series on a much smaller scale, they formed the NASCAR North Tour. They attracted title sponsorship from Canada's Molson Brewing Company and put together a schedule of 27 races at 10 tracks in New England, New York, and Quebec. Now, it cannot be overlooked that Catamount was still the hub for NASCAR late model racing in 1979. I'm going to throw some numbers at you quick here. Catamount held 17 weekly events in 79. Late models raced in 14 of them, and 11 of those counted toward the Tour Championship. 11! There were big races at Catamount, of course, like the Spring Green, the Winston 150, and the New England 300, plus four other long-distance shows, but there were also four tour shows. Get this. They were just regular distance weekly events, and each one of them was underwhelmingly named the Milton 35. Yeah, four of those. The tour needed a foundation that Tom Curley could control and oversee. And so he used his own track for that purpose, and it worked. Side note, eight years later, NASCAR would do pretty much this exact same thing at Oxford for the first year of the NASCAR Bush North Series. Beaver Dragon didn't mind that hometown connection to Catamount. Towing from just a couple miles down the road in Milton, he drove Quint Boyve's Black Magic Number 7 Nova to a pair of wins and four runner-up finishes at the home of the Brave. Beaver was also ultra-consistent on the tour with an unbelievable 23 top fives in 27 races. In addition to Catamount, he won Plattsburgh, the San Air Short Track, Cirque du Montaigne, which later became Autodrome Saint-Estache, New Hampshire's Monadnock Speedway, and at Mont-Laurier, Quebec, which is no picnic of a drive. Look it up on a map. Beaver won the inaugural NASCAR North Molson Tour Championship by 80 points over five-time winner Hector LeClaire of Fairfax. And only 
two other drivers, 19-year-old Tommy Rosati from Agawam, Massachusetts, and old-timer Gardner Levitt, the geezer from Keezer, as in Keezer Falls, Maine, started every race. Robbie Crouch won five races, Bobby Dragon won four, Claude Oban won two, and Stub Fadden and Langis Carone each won once. Andy Isbister of Wallingford, Connecticut, was the Rookie of the Year in his only season with the Tour. Beaver won it all again in 1980, but this time, only nine points separated him from runner-up Robbie Crouch. The schedule is more diverse, too, with 11 tracks hosting 25 races and Catamount only having four extra-distance events and no more of those silly Milton 35s. Beaver won three races to Crouch's four, and the most dominant driver was seven-time winner Mike Berry, but Beaver was once again super consistent with 18 top fives. Twelve different winners won races, nearly doubling the 1979 count, and Oxford favorite Leland Kangas was Rookie of the Year. The 1981 season started to mark the escalation of the tour, and the NASCAR brass in the home office in Daytona Beach was really starting to take notice. The schedule was once again 27 races at 11 tracks, but that included events at cornerstone places like Oxford, St. Air, Stafford, Claremont, New Hampshire, and for the first time, Thompson Speedway in Connecticut, and far-off locations like Autodrome St. Felicien in the northernmost reaches of the populated area of Quebec, and at Riverside Speedway in Antigonish, Nova Scotia, some 731 miles east of Catamount Stadium. Dick McCabe, the great main racer and lobsterman, won the championship on the strength of seven wins driving for the R.C. Moore team. Robbie Crouch was once again runner-up. He won five races, but he couldn't even see McCabe in the point standings as McCabe had more top fives than Crouch even had top tens. John Paul Cabana had a stout year with five wins, but he could only muster seventh place in the standings. New names started popping up into victory lane like Roger LaPearl, Phil Gerbode, Alan Whipple, and Ronnie Barkham, along with Mike Berry, Hector LeClaire, and Stubb Fadden. Young Vermonter Peter Pizzigalli was the top rookie. Although NASCAR was mostly hands-off and entrusted Curly to handle business without their constant guiding, the bigwigs in Daytona paid such close attention that they decided to adopt the same model. In 1982, the Budweiser Late Model Sportsman Series was born following Curly's path. Both the North Tour and the new Southern Tour had chassis rules that evolved from the weekly Late Model Sportsman cars, and the purses were on par with what Curly paid, except for places like Charlotte and Daytona, of course. Heck, they even got a beer sponsor. Side note again, to quickly fast forward, the Budweiser Late Model Sportsman Series was renamed the Bush Grand National Series in 1984, and today you know it as the NASCAR Xfinity Series. NASCAR also created the Winston Modified Tour in 1985 based off the same Curly model, and it's still going strong today as the NASCAR Wheel and Modified Tour. There were a record 33 NASCAR North Molson Tour races at 15 tracks in 82, including the first mile track at Dover Downs. And that saw a dozen drivers win that season, and the list read like a who's who, including for the first time Dave Dion and Mike Rowe. Seeking some of his own headlines and never shying away from controversy, of course, 1982 was the year that Curley decided to go a bit further. With U.S. Tobacco wanting to spend big bucks on advertising, a deal was put together with Beaver Dragon's former car owner, Quint Boyve, to field the first V6 engines in NASCAR with imported West Coast driver Chuck Bound and big sponsorship from Skull Chewing Tobacco. The V6 car was given clear and some claimed unfair advantages in the rules in order to give it a chance of winning, and Bound did just that. By the season's eighth race at Monadnock, the little V6 got a win, and then Bound racked up three more during the year. That wasn't enough, though, and Dick McCabe claimed a repeat title with eight wins and a monster size gap of 191 points back to Robbie Crouch. Bound's V6 Pontiac finished sixth in points. Massachusetts driver Wes Rosner, son of accomplished chassis builder Fred Rosner, was Rookie of the Year. U.S. Tobacco also sponsored, somewhat ironically, the Skull Copenhagen Canadian Series, a mini championship within the season schedule, which crowned a king for the races held north of the border. McCabe won that, too. 
The Molson branding ran out after 1982, and Stroh's Beer was the new title sponsor for the NASCAR North Tour in 83. Robbie Crouch was finally the champion for the first time after teaming up with crew chief Dick Glines and racking up eight wins. Thirteen drivers went to the winner's circle, most notably Dale Earnhardt in the series' first visit to the palace-like Cayuga International Speedway near Hamilton, Ontario. The 83 season also saw the grand opening of the new 7 8 mile Sanair Super Speedway Trioval in a race won by Beaver Dragon. Controversy erupted on the 4th of July at Thunder Road as Dave Dion was involved in a crash and his brothers ran out onto the track to fight with Keith Cavanaugh. Curly and NASCAR took opposing sides on the matter and the Dion team was either exiled or exiled itself, depending on how you look at it. And in a bit of foreshadowing, a young second generation driver named Randy LaJoy captured Rookie of the Year honors, a win at Catamount, and was a championship threat all year. Dick McCabe was once again the Skull Copenhagen Canadian Series champion. In 1984, the NASCAR North Tour made its first stop on a road course, running at the Briar Motorsports Park in Loudoun, New Hampshire, on the site of what is now New Hampshire Motor Speedway. Chuck Bowne, incidentally, won that race. There were 11 winners in 29 races, and Crouch beat LaJoy by just 13 points for the title. Cabana was the season's top winner with a half a dozen wins and the Skull Copenhagen title, and Beechridge dirt racer Rick Zemla was the top rookie. Another title sponsor change came in 1985 as Coors replaced Stroh's, and that was just about the only positive news all year. An early season controversy with star driver Bobby Dragon saw him disqualified for a carburetor infraction, and that matter went to court, which NASCAR's directors obviously didn't care for. A robust schedule of 30 races at a record 16 tracks gave the Tour an 1,100-mile east-west footprint from Annie Ganesh to suburban Buffalo, but the cloud of the Dragon lawsuit hung over the season. In August, things got worse. A major scoring dispute in a race at Catamount involved Robbie Crouch and Randy LaJoy, and that too went to court. In short, LaJoy was black flagged during the race but stayed on the track and crossed the finish line first, while race officials scored Crouch as the winner. The fight had massive implications not only on the race finish, but also the championship standings. We'll do a whole story time on this at some point, but that incident essentially marked the end for Tom Curley. Another scoring controversy at Catamount in the New England 300 in September didn't go to litigation, but it was another black mark on Curley, and at the end of the season, NASCAR fired him and dissolved the NASCAR Northward. Curley, of course, didn't go away, and he returned in 1986 with a new American-Canadian tour. NASCAR responded in 1987 with the rival Bush North Series, and the battle was on. Oh, and that Crouch-LaJoy thing? That went back and forth through courts, Curley siding with Crouch, NASCAR backing LaJoy, for three full years. It wasn't until 1988 that Randy LaJoy was declared the winner of the Catamount race and subsequently the 1985 NASCAR North Course Tour champion. Excellent job, Justin, with story time once again. Now we will uh, move on and let Justin make today's introduction for today's guest. Our guest this week is a guy that more people should know about. Um, He has won I don't know how many races they say it's over a hundred. I have confirmed 96, but it doesn't really matter because once you get over a certain point, you just learn that the guy's dominant. His biggest problem is that he keeps hurting himself. And in fact, he's in a neck brace right now as we do this. Um, but it is good to see you upright and taking air. Josh son, uh, welcome to uncommon deeds. And it's good to see you with a smile on your face. Oh, thank you. It was a treat getting on to do this podcast with you guys. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like with Justin kind of leading off, you have to explain why you're currently in a neck brace. Um, I think it was like three weeks ago, I believe, uh, the 27th. 
going around somebody down the front stretch and blocked his right rear of my left front and I just rolled like six or seven times, they tell me. And I got sent to emergency room and was there like for a week and then uh, just had a lot of bruising and swelling and numbness and stuff on my right side. And from the prior accident six years ago to the date, same car, same corner, same situation, it happened. So there's that. Does it give you trepidation or are you itching and ready to get back to it? Mixed feelings, but determination. I don't want to go out that way. And I thought and processed and chatted with people about it. And people just think my lives are made up on racing that I shouldn't try it again. But I really downside. I think I should because I don't want to go out that way. I was in a situation six, five years ago, whatever it was, when I decided to go back into the midget. Because it didn't happen to modified. It was just a midget car I drive. And they're kind of dangerous, kind of in a way, a little bit. Just because um, I'm a bigger person. Or not fat, but just a bigger... No, you're a tall guy. Tall guy, and getting one of those midgets, it's kind of... Not difficult, but I'm just... Error in those cars are just... Happens, stuff happens so quick, and... I just feel that I don't want to really stop racing that way, but then there's another sense you got to think about your family and different situations that I'm brought to now that I'm married as a wife. We got like four kids, so that's another thing that goes in the back of your mind. But after the year I had, I just it sucks to quit because I had a, probably one of the best years I've ever had. So for some context for, for people who may not be aware of, of who you are or what we're talking about, um, this happened at Bear Ridge, um, and it's the second time that it's happened to you, um, as you said. Um, you're a guy who races pretty much anything you can get your hands on, uh, modifieds, midgets. You've been doing the double dip thing for over 10 years now and successful in all of them. Um, but the crashes have been big and and certainly life-changing for you a couple of times. So this wreck that's happened right now, and that's not why we have you on the show, by the way, is <laughs> to talk about the wreck. We want to talk about we want to talk about your career. Yeah. But it's topical. So has this wreck um I guess brought back any lingering effects from 2016? For sure. A lot. Like probably ever since like I was off the meds pain meds in China deal with stuff then I just went back and thought about and I started had flashbacks about that deal and how long I was out I was I was had broken bones but I feel I don't know about the same but maybe just a little bit weaker now just pain wise and because I gotta wear this neck brace for like in like four to six weeks or whatever it was kind of the same deal but back then I was first accident i've a really bad had never really had to deal with it but now i deal with it twice it's kind of like i don't know you just think about what you could have done or what you should have done or what happened or and you get knocked out and then you don't really know the aspect of the incident so it's hard to tell but yeah you have a lot of back thoughts about it let's uh try to get more in a positive mind frame here <laughs> and why don't you tell us when you remember motorsports coming into your life um i want to say i was a senior in high school first off 
Oh, probably middle school actually. My friend raced uh, four cylinders at Bradford, and I he was my neighbor, Frank Rogers. He kind of got me in this deal racing and just went in the piss and helped him out a little bit when I was old enough to go in and worked on his crew for a little while. And then after that was the big thing in 2005. I started working for Gary in 2003 and 2005. He decided he wanted to own a race car. He asked me if I wanted to drive it. That's kind of where everything started right there. And that's Gary Corsi that you're talking about. Yep. Gary Corsi. Yep. Uh, you guys have been joined at the hip for, like you said, it's been almost 20 years. Um, <laughs> it's, it's insane to think about a, a car owner and driver partnership that has lasted that long. And I know that you guys have more of a friendship than anything, you know, owner driver re- relationship, but um, that kind of stuff doesn't really happen anymore. Um, especially at this level, you know, you guys really have, have something special there. Yeah, it's gone on for a while from a couple first two Enduros I did, like a Crown Vic, and then I had a little Civic, I think, did two of those. And then after that, he bought the Mustangs, and we had really good success with those between Dirt. And then he bought he bought me one of Tarbell's old cars, and I ran that. It came out for like a half year, and I kind of liked it. So then we went and bought one of Kendall's old, decent Mustangs and went and was running with Bobby Pryor and my brother-in-law and then Chris McKinstry and uh, Chris Lyman had the truck there and McCain and won the championship that year and said, hey, I was having fun, but I wanted to do different stuff and move up and really asphalt. I couldn't move up because it was just me doing the tire bill or whatever. I, did. I didn't work in the Colorado at all. I just loaded up on the trailer and came to the races and raced it. Bought a couple of tires throughout the year and just money-wise and Help-wise, I couldn't do it anymore, so he sold that, and then we started talking about moving up to, like, a street stock on dirt or whatever, and bought a car, and then it didn't work out, so we sold that, and then go big or go home and get into modifieds. We got to talk about your four-cylinder stuff. Um, that's <laughs> where I first saw you, and um, probably 2009, which I think, um, let me look at my notes, that's the year that you won the championships at both canaan tracks yeah um and i remember seeing you at both canaan tracks and seeing you win at both canaan tracks and thinking hmm there's something here uh so that's 2009 and then 2010 you won 32 features (laughs) like what the hell is that about you dominated bear ridge canaan and legion just killed them and i think that's the year we bought the modified too if i remember correctly at the end of the year kevin chafee so I was running all three of those tracks. Then we'd bring the modified, the cane and dirt and run that there on special event shows or whatever to get my feet wet. Funny thing is, I don't want to get off the subject, but the end of that year, Danny Doyle bought the car. Last race gave Gary the check. And I told the car that night yes. on the front stretch and the That's body right. was torn right off the car and he still bought it. That's I still goes back in my memory about that deal. But yeah, I won a lot of races that year. And I was running that old asphalt car that Chris McKentry's dad built for asphalt. And we bought that because we sold the other two cars to this other guy that really wanted them. And the price was right. And we knew we were getting out of it or cylinders. So we put this car together and it was just all thrown together and just, just to finish the year. But, you know, it, was much it was ending and restarting my career in a way. 
But what the hell are you thinking as you're just absolutely rolling in its wins after wins after wins? Are you just, is it believable in your head? Is it, do you even uh, notice it? At first it was like, it was like, I'm really doing this. Like, I didn't think I was going to be anybody. Like I was just going to ride around and just not have thing. And then trophy after trophy and stuff after stuff stuff started clicking and i got better things when my fifth race in the mustang i got my first trophy that was that was something to kind of have in the back of your mind i guess and i was competitive and i got second in points my rookie year i believe i almost positive a canaan earn yeah canaan i think or no bearers actually sorry because i ran canaan a little bit that year and to andy johnson which he was probably one of the best in Mustangs for quite a bit of years with Jeff Kowalski and then Chris McKinstry, you know, and just kind of unbelievable. And then you started rolling off trophies, get two or three in a weekend, and then, hey, something's happening. So, yeah, it was just, yeah. just uh, show up to the track and you not kind of guaranteed a trophy, but you know you're going to be up there. You were racing against some really talented guys out there. I mean, Chris McKintry is a hell of a racer. Yeah, he's raw talent that you don't see that anymore. Yeah, he's, and he's won a lot on dirt and, and uh, asphalt. He dominated the uh, Northeast Mini Stock Tour one year. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was a year I was kind of helping him a little bit. Yeah. year I got done, the asphalt stuff. But, yeah, you had him. You had was back then at Bears, I was racing Dean Switzer, Kevin Heron, Danny Doyle, yeah. Andy Johnson. Uh, this switchers was racing there too, I believe, in my earlier years. There's a bunch of people I can't remember all the names, but there's a lot of them. We had 20 plus mini stocks a, a night, yeah. And me and Bass Boys will start 18th, 19th, and work your way up through, yeah. It was fun. Um, that 2009 year when you won both the championships at Canaan. I mean, <clears throat> it's a stupid question, maybe, but do you ever get confused on which car you're working on? <laughs> like you're, you know, you guys are thrashing all all summer, and and you're trying to maintain two race cars that are both Mustangs. Yeah. Um. So they're obviously similar with just about everything. There's not a lot you can do with those cars, but uh, you know, did you ever did you ever screw up and put the dirt setup in the asphalt car one night or something? Honestly, the biggest thing was just a dirt car because only had one of them. I was racing those at two nights a week, and then the asphalt, oh, yeah. asphalt yeah. thing was easy. Not, I'm not saying it was easy, but tried different things, and then one night I kind of got messed up in a heat race and put it in the wall. I ruined the whole rear end. Chris McKinstry worked all week on it and put it together, but never really did much of the asphalt car. Really, I just we would scale every once in a while, but I wouldn't really put a lot of time into it because I didn't have a lot of time. I wanted to concentrate on the dirt stuff because that's kind of what I was happy doing. I just did the asphalt just for something to do, really, something different, because I always wanted to dry asphalt, and it was cool. But, yeah, I didn't really – biggest thing is just getting the dirt car going because really tough competition and stuff. What was it that drew you more to dirt than asphalt? Honestly, 
the thing about asphalt I really liked was you didn't have to wash the car. It was a plus. Yeah. Racing wise, I thought it was okay, but it, it's not like dirt when you can go change your line if your car is trash. You can move around. Mustang, I moved around a lot up against the wall, down on the bottom, middle. You could just do different things with a car that you couldn't do on asphalt. I tried that at Canaan a bunch of times and just you get way too loose and you got to kind of stay right on the inside unless you really got a really good car and people on the bottom are slow. But I just, I've been a dirt fan from day one, honestly. I just, I love it. Just hanging it sideways and just right on the gas. Was there anything from the skill set of either, either surface that you could use, you know, Friday night on the dirt, learn something and be like, I'm going to try that tomorrow on the asphalt. Oh yeah. Um, the asphalt deal helped me out a lot at Bear Ridge. When you get in the slick, just keep the car straight as you can be and just kind of power off the corner. And I think the dirt stuff on the asphalt made me more confident if the car got kind of edgy or slippery or loose off the corner, you would just power through it. And I was just used to that on the dirt because I was, just came into place. And I thought, cause I really, I liked a really loose car. Just, I think it just made me a smoother driver going back and forth. I know it took a couple laps to transition both cars, but I think all in all, it just made me a better driver running more laps all weekend, more cars. So, I mean, that's, that actually is, tees it up perfect for the next thing I was going to ask you. It, it seems like your whole career has been more laps, more seat time. And you, you don't mind rushing around and jumping from car to car or, or hitting a race somewhere far off that, you know, <laughs> you leave work early to get there kind of thing. I mean, you guys, you guys race. That's what you do. Um, did it speed up your learning process? Honestly, I really think it did. Cause I think if I was just running one night a week for 15 years, what fun would that be? Not very much fun. You're running two or three nights a week. More laps you get on yourself, more confidence you get in yourself, more trophies you get. Because you're just consistently just running, say, what, 100 laps a weekend instead of 30. So yeah. you just, that comes into play too. So you're getting all that kind of durability in your body and your car and reflexes and just different things because you're running. I know it, that was back in the day, but now I'm running midget modified, jump out of the midget, get in the modified, jump on the mod, get in the midget, and it's just back to back. And I go out and all being run it and just different things. Then during the winter, I used to run the midget down south, and that helped out a lot during the winter. So that was a cool deal. But yeah, I just think the more you more you run, the better you're going to be. And you just put yourself up for success instead of just kind of racing one night and say, oh, I just. I just think it helps out to me. You kind of mentioned it and it caught my ear, not counting obviously the neck brace. Uh, what is it like physically to get used to, to run multiple cars, multiple times a night, multiple times a week? What's it do? Or what's the toll on your body? Does it take oh. getting used to? Honestly, it used like when I first did it, the four cylinder were jumping from those was kind of 
that was easy. That's like just going to a grocery store on a Sunday drive. But the midget deal, people don't know. Or, <laughs> Speak for really, yourself, man. I can't drive my thumb up my ass. <laughs> well, I'm just saying those things that drive so easy. It's just, yeah. it was a walk in the park once, like four or five years into it. But the midget and the modified, it's like the top of the top around New England. I'm not saying big block is a totally different thing, but the sports fans and the midgets, they're a handful of drive. And it just, at first I didn't really, I wasn't very good in them when I started. It's just, they're just a lot of power and just turning stuff. And that was the biggest thing is just the turning ratio and how quick things happen compared to those on the modified you had to get used to. Now I still, it takes me a couple laps. I jump in the midget. It's just different. But yeah, it's a lot. I think it's harder, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Because the modified just kind of like the four cylinder, it's just kind of slow motion deal. But they are fast, but not like the midget. So it takes you a couple laps. That's my only kind of struggle, really. You know, it strikes me that you've been doing this for a dozen years, which means you are now a dozen years older than you were <laughs> when you started. Does that have you noticed uh, a difference? I mean, probably a slow, steady change, whatever the change might be. But, um, you know, ha- have you noticed that, man, this was easier when I was a kid? It was a lot easier back in the day. I've kind of become a slower and more uh, cautious driver maybe lately. <laughs> but he says, he says as he's in a neck brace. Yeah. Well, but uh, no, I just think I was dumber when I was younger. <laughs> Pissed a lot of people off. So I try late in the last couple of years. I haven't really done that as bad, but I've wanted to, people have wanted to beat me up in the past, probably my first five years of racing. So yeah, I've, I think I've just become a smarter driver. Maybe still winning trophies, but just a smarter way. <laughs> they said I was a hothead in the four cylinders. So, well, did anyone take you under their wing at that point and be like, "Hey, why not try to do things this way?" No, I don't think so. I think it was just me. Nobody really grabbed me and said, hey, you got to do this, you got to do that. I figured it out my own, really. I I think I kind of figured it out when I started racing the Modifieds because it was an open wheel. Things would happen a lot more worse and a lot more money to fix than a four-cylinder where you just bang out the body and just whatever. Yeah. There was really wasn't a lot of upkeep on the Mustangs, really. And you just needed a good motor, pretty much what it comes down to with those cars and not have stuff break. So you just check it and modify it. It's just four or five nights a week. Make sure it's ready to go. And if you have a little accent, a couple grand to fix it. So you got to take that into play, too. Do you remember the first time you cleaned out a front end on a modified thinking like, how the yeah. hell are we going to fix this thing? Yeah, when I hit the uke tire. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my rookie year, I think. And then I think the rookie year, I went and, like, kind of had it on the wall and just had to reclip the whole front of the car. And, yeah, I was like, how the hell am I going to do this? I'm not used, used to this stuff. Whose idea was it to move up from a four-cylinder Mustang to a sports and modified? I mean, there's a lot of – you had a lot of options. At Bear Ridge, you've got the the late models, you've got the coupes. You, I mean, you kind of really stepped over a couple of building blocks there. Was it your idea? Or was it Gary's or somebody um, else's? 
Somebody else's. Really? Yeah. They said if I wanted to keep racing that I had to move up. But I was told. So Okay. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to read the tea leaves here, and I'm guessing that that's got to do with you winning thirty two races and just kind of stinking yep. up the division. So yep. my my guess is that Mr. Elms put his yeah, arm on yeah, it. Yeah, it was roundabout way, yes, it was a promoter. He just yeah. thought it was time for me to move up and a lot of people agreed, and I kind of said, we really can't do anything much in that class. So we just, at first, he bought, I think, one of Alan Hammond's old, it was a slash limited late models, what they call them back then. Didn't have a motor, bought that, and then you know how Gary is. He second gets himself, he's just thinking, and so it's oh, either yeah. go. Oh, yeah. Got, got that, and then he's like, oh, should we buy a coupe? But we can only race a Bradford. So he's like, I mean, he did a coupe deal with Chris McKinstry when Chris started out of the Force owner. So then he said, "The hell, with it. I'll just buy a sports and model because he bought that at the same price you could get one a, a coupe for." And he said, "We can see how it goes, and if we like it, we can just travel more." And and he went that route and sold that white model to somebody else because it was kind of a weird. Like I, I didn't know exactly what it was, but we didn't have a motor, didn't have it was just front end, rear end, and, that was it. and he got to spend more money to get that all, and then he. Talked to Kevin, he bought that one, I think turnkey, like for 6,500 or 7,500, something like that, ready to go, just to get some laps underneath my belt. Was it nice in a way to kind of have that decision taken out of your hands for someone to say, you can't stay here, and you can just be like, well, no choice. If we want to do this, we got to go. Honestly, yes, it was. It was a lot easier. I wish they would have done that probably five years ago, before that. I think if I would have had more time in the modified prior younger years, it would have been a lot, lot better. I just, I, I know the four cylinders are good, but I think the longer you go, the more time you waste of stuff you could have done. But that's just in the back of my mind. But yes, your question, it was a lot easier to someone approach me about it or approach Gary or just say something about it to make it easier. What was the hardest part of that? transition to the modifieds you say you wish you had gotten after it you know maybe five years younger what was that hard part that you wish you had had more time put in i wish because i didn't really start i think my full season in dirt my was 2011 so if i started that say five years before that just to I think it's just five more years I could have had experience with those cars because they drive totally different. And they drive totally different now, but past tense, they're just seat time. And those cars are so huge. So that's the only kind of thing that goes in the back of my mind. Um, When Butch Elms delivered that message, was it friendly or was it like, you know, I mean, what's your relationship like with Butch? It was pretty good. I think it was kind of a joking, kind of serious. Say, hey. I think it's time for you to move up. I think it was maybe somebody, a couple other people talking to him about it too, just because it's just, and at that time it was like, that class is kind of petering out with Mustang wise. Cause then they started mixing the front wheel drives and the Mustangs and it just, I'm not saying it wasn't as fun, I guess. It was just the deal when there was only, I don't know, 10 or 12 and we used to have 20 something. So it was, I think it was just, Perfect timing for both reasons, class-wise and for us-wise. 
you're up in the modified there at the end of that magical 2010 season and you guys were competitive right away i mean you really were you were second at least once that first year the first you know last month of the season yeah i was surprised we really uh were decent i think running canaan helped out quite a bit with me ran that and i ran a couple big shows out that year and just in bradford i just i've always been my home track and i've always done really good there and Maybe it was just something about it, but yeah, I was, and I started getting confident with it, and then we started spending more time on the modified setup wise, and people helping me wise, and just I think Adam helped me out quite a bit, a lot. Adam Pearson. Oh yeah, really good friend. Oh yeah, he helped me quite a bit when I was in the modified, and then running with him at Bradford too. When you have success immediately like you did um you know is it tough to maintain a friendly relationship with the guys that are helping you when you're beating them you know chafee and pearson and and guys like that that you know you you weren't even you were about halfway through your first season in a modified full season when you started winning races in 2011 i mean were they like all right kid you're cut off yeah, I think it was kind of a friendly little deal, but I think in the back of their mind, like there's something there. Competition-wise, it's going to be there. I was talking to... I didn't really talk to them that first year. I didn't really know them a lot, but a later, a couple of years after that, then I really started knowing something when we started switching uh, car models and spending more time when we could benefit from that, because it's I think 12 was when Gary bought his brand new car, big now, and that's when we really got good. First year was just a practice year and stuff. What I think we won one race or two races that year, I think. I can't remember exactly, but after that, and they used to joke around me and stuff, and that's when we started getting a relationship and knowing stuff. You seem like you're incredibly competitive. When you make that switch... How much kind of wiggle room do you give to yourself before kind of those expectations really start to kick in where you expect yourself to compete and you expect yourself to have an opportunity to win? Yeah, I didn't really give myself really much wiggle room the second year because I knew the first year was good and I was competitive, but... Second year, I think I won three or four races, I want to say, and I was top five in points or something like that. I can't exactly remember. But when you do that, then you're like, oh, my expectations are really high, so I need to perform and I need to do good. And This needs to happen. There's really no way around it when I've done this good in a four-cylinder and then starting to do good and modified. is like, I can do this. And then I got... Kevin Chafee, Dan Dubell, Adam Pearson. We got Jim Morgan. I think he was racing back then. Uh, Chris Donnelly was still in Chris the Chris Donnelly. And then those, the Liv Vanway brothers were racing, I believe. Gary Siemens. Um, Siemens. Yeah. There was Brian King. There was, I don't know, so many people back in the day. It was just, I think Gene. Yeah. I think Gene was racing too, I think, I believe. Yeah, he was. It was just crazy, competition wise, and just. 
It just felt like it was there, I guess, is what I'm trying to to a point it was there, but it was a lot of competition. So you kind of had to say, Hey, I have to be good to be great. Did you, um, did you have any flack from other drivers being a four cylinder guy moving up right into the modified? Like, did did anybody kind of give you any shit about it or be like, this kid doesn't know what he's doing. You got to watch out. He's a weapon or anything like that. Or did they respect the fact that you guys had won 65 races or whatever it was? I think there was a respectable thing, but I think there was people that second guessed the decision because they're like, that's totally different. You're not going to do good or you're going to struggle. There's always going to be those haters, keyboard warriors, as people say. You got to kind of put that behind you and just say, I'm going to do it and be strong. And, but I did have a lot of people back me strength wise just because I showed it, showed it, I guess. Yeah. In doing some research for this, um, I went through a lot of our articles, some that I wrote and some that other people had written. And the common headline was sun rising, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm sure that that's been something that's been throughout your whole career, but you know, were you comfortable with having more attention on yourself than, than most drivers would, especially in a four cylinder. I mean, guys, never get articles written about them from the mini stocks, but then you get up to the sports and modifieds. And it seems like you kind of had that reputation as, as a competitor and, and people were kind of watching you. Did you feel pressure from that? I think a little bit, honestly, I really do because I, it was just, it was up here like four cylinders and then you get there and then it was a good feeling to have articles and people talking about me. Hey, when you walk down the street and somebody points out, oh, that's Josh, son. he's done this, he's done that. It's a great feeling. But then when you do kind of mediocre, then you're like, oh, I kind of made myself look stupid or whatever. But it does, it feels really good to become, I'm a small white river town boy and doing good things in New England. Yeah, it's like they say, whether they're talking good about you or talking bad, you're doing something right. It's when they don't talk about you. That's when you got to worry that you're slipping that's through. The, that's the damn truth. <laughs> so true. Honestly, it really is through my whole career. I've heard people talk good and talk bad. 2012, you're in the modified and you won a handful of races that year. And that's your second really full season. Um, then the midget happens, you know, almost right away. You only had a couple of years in the modified before you got into the midget how did that deal come about i think it was 2012 i want to yeah. i'm almost positive i, I believe it was i was racing the modified i think canaan canaan i was racing the modified and i got like probably six missed calls from this person and i didn't recognize the number and i didn't have really good service and i was getting down into enfield where i was getting better service and somebody called again i didn't get it so i went to voicemail and it was frank Try calling me or Wally actually. Sorry, Wally is guy I know from Woodstock that I helped do some hay in store. Gary knew he said this guy that delivers hay to me is looking for a driver for a midget, and he gave me his number. And I called him. It was late. Called him. He's like, "Hey, I just lost my driver. I was looking for somebody to drive my midget tomorrow." I said, "Okay, I'll come look at it." I didn't know nothing about these cars at all. I just see the USAC stuff on Facebook. And I went down to his farm in Weathersfields, got fitted in the seat, and I drove it that night. 
know, the next day, but I went that morning to get fitted and that whole minute start, started with Frank Manafort. Is there nerves involved in that? I mean, that's kind of... I didn't know what to think when I saw that thing now the fire. And I was like, what is this? And then the first time in it, I just, I don't know, it was, it was a scary feeling. <laughs> I was like, this ain't going to work. <laughs> how how tall are you? Six feet. Yeah, so there's <laughs> enough room in there for somebody who's 5'9". Yeah. Right? In those yeah, cars. Yeah, it's short. Like, you know, your knee is in the steering box. Oh, yeah, definitely. Your head's above the cage. And, you know, those those cars, you, you have to put them on. It's uh, and, and the dumbest thing ever, first time in the car, they're like last or whatever, came up through. Was going for second and smoked the front stretch wall and kept going and finished fourth on the last lap. It was crazy. It, it was, was fun as hell, of, but yeah, it <laughs> did, was a hell of a debut. Did you mention to them that you didn't have a clue kind of about the midget, or was it like the rest of us when we go into a job interview and they ask you if you can do something? So, oh, yeah, I can totally do that, and you figure it out later. Yeah, I said, I can do it. I said, I don't know nothing about it, but I'll try like hell, is what I told him. He's like, okay, here you go. Here's the steering wheel. Did you know who Frank Manafort was before you started uh, driving him for him? I had no clue. Not one clue. I mean, but, you you know his history now. <laughs> oh, yeah, big time, yeah. Uh, you know, huge presence in modified racing down at, like, Riverside Park and He's Mass and Connecticut. Best and person tracks. I've ever met in my life. Yeah. Hands down. I mean, just a... a Kind of a heart. legend down there. He's a heart of gold. Yeah. It really was. He made everything so much better and easier for me for a good four or five years. Crazy. So that first night in the midget, and you know, like you said, you were going for second place. Yeah. That with Kevin. Must, <laughs> yeah, with Kevin Chafee. Yeah. That's right. Um, that must have been the moment that endeared you to him. Yeah, I think so. He's like you just did that with this car. Like you're on for the next race. So that's all started that. And then we started running that can and Bradford stuff with both, both tracks. So, so I ran both tracks with a midget too. Yeah. And traveled to New York, to Glen Ridge. Then we went to Fonda with them too. So where that all started. Do you get more excitement out of, new challenges than you know being comfortable even if maybe you're more successful in being comfortable honestly yes i do comfortable it just comes and goes because i could hop i wasn't comfortable at all in the car and i just drove it and that's just how it was because that's what i was presented to myself i'm just getting a wheel the hell out of it that's how i've always been that way really I think I know the answer to this, but have you ever second guessed yourself on anything? It doesn't seem like where I never have. Yeah. No, I have not. I've just pretty much done it. And that's what got me in the situation I'm in now. I just went for it and it didn't pay off. You're talking about your injury. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. The video was on YouTube. Oh, uh, you know what? I actually haven't seen that one. Both of them are. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you got a highlight reel. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> um, in 2013, um, 
there was that uh, Outlaw Midget series, like you said, that ran uh, Kanan, ran uh, Fonda, which are two very different racetracks, and Glen Ridge, again, a very different racetrack. So you're traveling around and, and putting some miles on the throughway and stuff. I mean, that's a totally different experience than driving up 91 to little old Bear Ridge or, or Canaan or wherever. Yeah, that was a huge deal. I just, the nights you ran, I think, Glen Ridge was Fridays then. I am, yeah, Friday nights they were back then. So I used to go on a farm Friday afternoon, hop in the, the rig with Frank and Elliot there and go down and think Adam used to meet us too because he was running the other car at yeah. that time in a series and we just go down, sit back in the $100,000 dually and just relax. <laughs> I had a big, big trailer and stuff. It was those memorable times. i never forget it. And you guys killed them too. <laughs> if if Adam didn't win, you did, and the other one was second. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we had a pretty good run going. I think he missed half or a couple races one of those years, so I won the championship, and he won won the next year or whatever it was. And I think they kind of stopped at the division or was doing something else, pro motor wise stuff. So, kind of on a separate note, do you? Do you feel a little bit of pride when you see someone like Adam continue to just thrive and get the accolades that he's getting? I really do because I was really close to him and he deserves everything he gets because he's the best in New England, in New York. And people can argue me all the way about it, but I'll give you facts. I don't really talk to him too much now because he's just really busy and stuff going on, but without a doubt, best. Look at him at Thunder Road with Flying Tigers. Right. Ran a late model, Thunder Road. Did decent with junk. Got a triple crown at Thunder Road. Got a triple crown at Bear Ridge. Triple crown at Canaan. Everywhere. Went at Albany, <laughs> Saratoga. Yeah. Top 10, top 5 Super Dirt Car Series. Goes on and on and on. Fifteen, what? Fifteen championships, something like that. Oh, it's way more than 15 that. Fifteen or twenty or something like yeah, that. I've got him. I dominated in the coops. Bear Ridge alone. You know, yeah. dominated in the coops. Ran the modifies. His dad made him get back in the coop one night at that Canyon Cup deal when Canyon was still going and killed him. Mm-hmm. He, he hasn't raced a car in ten years. It's just and midget you. What he won twelve in a row that year or something like that nine yeah, in a row or whatever yeah, it was. He, he tied it's just it's just crazy. The, the USAC all time record for yeah. number of wins or consecutive wins or something. You just Do you. I, I want to build off the question that Tom asked though. You and Adam were running in the same equipment for the same team at the same time, and you were beating him a fair amount. Did you ever feel like, damn it, I wish. Years later, like I, you know, I you see him almost win at Weedsport or wherever the hell they were a few weeks ago, and think that should be me or that could have been me. Honestly, I don't think that. I really don't because he's, I know he's better than me, hmm. without a doubt. But I think I'm decent enough where I could stay with him. But big block is totally different than Sportsman's. I think I decent enough to run with him, but I just. 
his throttle control is just un- oh, terrible. A lot of people just can't do it. I can do it to a point, but he's just, you can just get the car to roll to the corner, just like unreal and just make me look stupid. A couple nights in the midget is just, just how it is. So I just don't think I'm that caliber of driver. Hmm. I really don't. Tip but of the I've hat. Looked up, I've looked up to him and he's taught me so much. So I'm not taking anything away from myself or him or whatever. Just I think it's just facts are facts. Yeah, tip of the hat for, you know, being humble and being able to be honest with yourself. I mean, Justin and I joke back and forth all the time when we're messaging about, you know, certain people who they have trouble it's always someone else's fault and you know they're always the fastest car there but it's always someone else's fault that's why they didn't win and to be be able to kind of look from the outside and say hey i'm not quite him even with as impressive a resume as you have i think that's a fairly impressive mental feat that you can pull off there yeah, well, thank you. I just like being honest, and I just think, uh, I think, um, I'm not trying to be cocky. I think I'm good, but I don't think I'm great. And that's what it comes down to. Well, I have, I have really good equipment. Yes, that's very true. It just, I don't know. It's just how I feel. So I, I want to point out a few things. There's a couple of memories that I have of your greatness, and I think you are a great driver. Um, there was a night at devil's bowl. Actually, I think it was the first race on the new track that you beat Kenny Tremont heads up. And everybody said, what the hell? Who was Josh son? You know, nobody at devil's bowl really knew you that much. And you went out and beat the God, right? Yeah. That's was probably the most memorable race before this year. Honestly, to beat him on any night is just, crazy but i think i did and to put in the king of dirt series and then me tying child first winning the heat race starting on pole him passing me passed him back right then he passed me again then i threw a slide job bomb i think turn one and two or something happened and i got passed by him and just it was it was a crazy night and it was just you you beat him with the move that he everybody thought beat you with yeah the right? like sling that was, sh- whatever slingshot whatever they called it that night i can't remember what it was called but yeah, yeah. honestly did you, yeah did you and ken ever have a conversation about that race uh at the end of the race we did he said i did a hell of a job and he said i earned it that was the fastest car he just got me on a restart i went up too high on like one of the corners he kind of drove underneath me and then kind of trailed him for a couple laps then Another caution came out, and I just got a better restart, and then I got by him. But, yeah, he was very nice and just said I deserved to win because I had the better car and better driver that night. That's that's super cool. And I have to imagine, you know, championships are great, but, you know, when you're a little older and you're retired and regaling – with stories of of your prime, those are the ones you're probably going to hit on first. That is true. 
the only sad thing about me is about I'm not being able to run a lot of full seasons in the modified. I think that's what hurts my resume a little bit. So I don't have any championships in the modifieds. Five in the four cylinders, one in the midgets, and zero in the modifieds. But I'm here for trophies and wins, not championships. That's pretty much what it comes down to. Nick Sweet says it too. He'd rather win a race than win but, a championship. But on that note, I think this year was the year in both yeah. cars. I was tied for the lead in the midgets going into the night. And I was second in points to probably one of the best at Bradford going into that night. I crashed. So Jason Gray. Yeah. Yep. 30 points behind him. Yeah. So that's how that. But I do like trophies a lot. And I do like uh, big ones. So, and I go on right in front of me. New Hampshire Moisbeard. Major race. Three, three grand to win. Plaque right in front of my reg. I get to so, keep it. So, <laughs> yeah. And that's, I, I, you know, obviously the Loudon win is huge. Um, fucking crazy. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> but this year really was shaping up to be one of your very best. And you had four wins in the midget and two in the modified this year before your accident. Um, you guys truthfully hadn't been performing that well for the last X number of years. You had a lot of wrecks that kind of, you know, ended your season early or, or made the car, you know, not up to snuff. Um, it just seemed like if there was some bad luck, you were going to find it, but this year things were clicking. Yeah. I think 2018. I think so. Started real good. I won the race with Kenny. I think I won topless night with that year too. Then I don't know, was it the last race or second to last race? I just destroyed the car, like totaled it bad and and we had that big pile up on the front stretch and the other two hundred. Yeah, the car was just junk and just ended the year really bad. And then two thousand nineteen we got a new car. And we had it the year before, but we never put it to, we had it together but never raced it. Because we really liked this old car we had. We bought off Jim Morgan, and this thing was just stupid fast. And we couldn't run that one, so we put this one together, and I just, I didn't feel good all year. Either I'd wreck it, or I'd just finish in the back, and I was just, something. maybe it's me. Maybe I should just stop while I'm ahead, not even worry about it. So, then, finished the year off of that, sold the car to Richie Simmons. I think it took 2020 off to think about stuff and say, hey, am I done? Should I not be racing? What is going on here? And then I just thought about it. And and Gary went out and bought a brand new car. 2020, I think, right? Yeah, 2021 or whatever. Then I ran 2021. And I think we won, what, three races that year? Went on coils. I think that's what helped me out. Honestly, I really do. I, I think coils was my positive thing of my modified career in the last couple of years. Ever since I got on those, I was just really comfortable and really fast. I think I won three races last year. I started racing midget again last year, and I think I won one race last year with that. And then this year, just ever since 
I got to the drag, I was just really fast. I don't know. The best I felt for a long, long time. To kind of build off what Justin said and what you said and how well this year was going, if you don't mind me asking, is it hard for you to stay positive after that wreck a few weeks ago? Yes, it is. 100%. It really is. Because it's like what the year could have been or could have had. That's the hardest thing, I would say. Is there any sort of solace that you can take in the fact that you were kicking everybody's ass when it happened? Oh, yeah. That's got to, that's got to, like, I mean, it sucks that you're not in the race car, right? It sucks that you can't turn your head, you know? Yeah, it sucks. But you have that trophy from Loudon. You just won at Malta. You, you know, killed him at Bear Ridge in both cars this year. And that Um, big dirt car East race at Bradford. That's right. Um, (laughs) So can I mean, can you feel good about, Listen, I don't know what the future is, and I don't I, I don't know if you do either. If you never race a car again, it sucks you got banged up, but you, if that was the end, went out on top, right? For sure. I'd say uh, domination in the midget, but they might listen to this and say I'm lying, but I'm telling you right now, I had the fastest car, without a doubt. I won the last four out of five races in the midget. Between three different tracks. That must tell you something. Right. And I won by over half a lap at Albany, Saratoga in my last race. Before the accident. And the modified just... Modified just stupid fast. I won two out of three segments of Madness. Won that East race. Won the race before that. Then, I don't know. Crazy. So, yeah. Take a lot from it. And went out on a very high note and good note is just two both cars are really fast and competitive every week that's kind of where it lies down that's what you think about in the back of your mind if this is the last year is it the last i i'm thinking yes but i really have not have a positive decision just it's a tough decision it really is it's probably the biggest decision i've ever made that one really weren't it wasn't as bad i don't think as this decision that's like really first time i really got messed up decently bad but i'm almost 40 years old been doing this for 20 years i have a family so I don't know. I just a lot probably, of things to think about. Yeah, probably need to give it some time. It's like yeah. you know, with athletes retiring, they say don't make a decision right when the season ends. When emotions are high, super high or super low, give it a little time and yeah, last, figure it out. Last decision was like over a year. I thought about it, so see how everything goes. Healing wise, I guess it all. Is a big matter in the situation. When I f- see the doctor in October, then I can kind of see what decision comes to what. 
make a better kind of progress decision, I guess. Would you, would you actually prefer that the decision is made for you by the doctor? Like that it takes it out of your hands. Like you, your body can't do this. So now you can't race. Or would you rather make your own decision and say, yes, I'm still going to try this or no, I've had enough. That's what happened last time with the doctor. He, uh, did not give me permission. He said, it's your decision. And I'm pretty sure that's what's going to happen again. But I talked to some doctors. And he said, I hope you really don't get in a race car ever again. What he said before even I was discharged. He said, you're just making the possibility of not walking or worse. Uh, spinal issues just to get more and more. What he told me, but in your answer, I think it's best if I make the decision myself, just for my benefit. But it would make it a lot easier if the doctor said, "Hey, you're not racing ever again." That would be easier. I just don't think it's going to be that way. You mentioned at the beginning, you know, four kids, lovely wife. Are they part of the decision process, or are they? giving you space to do what you need to do. They are a lot of the decision, but on my wife's behalf, she said, I'm here for you and whatever you decide, you decide. I'm not going to pressure you and gonna leave you be and whatever the decision comes, I'll back you hundred percent. She's been around it for a couple of years. So she kind of understands what it's all about now. Fuck, that all that almost makes it harder, <laughs> right? It does. <laughs> now it it's does. really up to you. <laughs> yeah, it, it is really. When it comes down to it, yeah, it really is. Who, who's who is keeping your spirits up these days? I mean, I know that you've got a lot of friends around the Northeast that are, uh, that are pulling for you. My wife, especially, but especially Tim Hodge, yeah. calls me and texts me every day. Yeah, make sure I'm doing okay. What's going on? And then. Gary, of course, calls me, and JR, which owns the measure, he calls me almost every day. We'll chat for 20 minutes, half an hour every day, and and Jason Gray usually messages me, see how I'm doing, and Will Hall does, and a bunch of people. Those are kind of the most ones that do it every day, but people do reach out and just ask how, what's going on, how's it going, and well, those are mostly the most common ones, really. Especially Tim Hodge, what he's doing for me at the track. So I'll leave yeah. it as that. Yeah. I don't know if you know, but you probably do. Well, he's driving the car, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. 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 Didn't he almost win the other night? Yeah, he got fourth. First <laughs> time in the car. Yeah. <laughs> car is fast. <laughs> uh, if you need to pick me up, talk to Tim Hodge. He's, yeah. yeah. We've been through a lot together. We yeah. broke our necks the same time last That's time. Right. So That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's a good guy. What's that experience like the first time seeing someone else driving your car? Holy shit, that's terrifying, dude. It's terrifying. <laughs> it's just, I've never had to do it before. Because I don't think I went to the races last time I broke. I don't believe so. Or no one didn't. Nobody raced my car. Yeah. Because sure. Gary was against that. And I told him I want somebody in it this time. So it's very, uh, it's different strange 
it looks weird. And then you come in and just you're looking around. What can I do to make this stupid thing faster? Because it just looks slow. But then he wins his heat race and qualifies. I think third out of thirty cars and get, gets fourth in the feature. So first time in the car. So I guess it's terrifying at first, but it's all good now. I just I don't know. I just I just like seeing my car out there or Gary's car. A, a different kind of fun. Yeah. Oh, it, it's a different fun. That's for sure. Yeah. It makes a uh, more enjoyable, I guess. Not so stressed. Out. So. I want to ask your opinion on this and I didn't plan to ask this until we started talking about it, but it seems like there's been a lot of open wheel injuries and major issues. Um, lately you being one of them, you mentioned Will Hull. He just got banged up bad a couple of weeks ago. Um, I just saw a video of a, of a guy literally running around on fire out in California in a sprint car last night. Um, is there a problem with open wheel racing or is that just part of it? I think that's a part of it, but like the other stuff, like USAC and sprint car stuff, I just, I think the safety equipment there, I just think stuff is happening. I don't really know a good answer for it, but I think it's just dangerous open wheel compared to like closed doors like late models or even imcas or northeast modified it's not gonna happen as bad because and sprint cars are going so fast usac and just the freak thing that's happening i think i don't really i think the usac midget thing is just they dropped the age limit so i think that's why a lot of wrecks are happening younger kids with a lot of balls going for it that's what Kyle Larson said too, and Christopher Bell, and just how it is. But around here, I just think it's freak, freak stuff happening. Like that guy that caught on fire is probably just a fueling that came off or something, or something stupid that happened. Just I saw, I watched a video this morning. He's just running around on fire. That was scary as hell. Yeah, really. And then that other accident, like, I think last week, something happened to somebody. Oh, well, there was a big fire at Thunder Road with Stephen Donahue too. Yep, yeah. there's that. Oh yeah, that one. And then there was another one somewhere I just read. Is this? I don't know what is going on with the fire stuff. Even fucking NASCAR, crazy. All right, yeah, Kevin. Right. I know their stupid cars are stupid, anyways, but they're trying to make them better. <laughs> but whatever. That's I hate. I, sorry, I don't like NASCAR anymore. <laughs> that's all it's right like, that new car sucks yeah. <laughs> off the subject <laughs> i'm a dirt guy yeah back in the day ca crouch used to say purdy don't go but that was before everyone was trying to be a social media influencer these days in racing it's just as important to look good as it is to go fast am i right that's where after dark custom designs comes in if you need custom racing apparel, this is the place to go. Any color, any style, and the best part, no minimum order quantity. Screen printed or direct-to-garment t-shirts and hats with your logo or design on them, and hats are just $15 each. That's your cost. Founder Hunter Garduno is a racer, and he gets it. So in his words, your logo is going to look good on anything he makes. Now taking orders for September 1st, contact Hunter at 
793-7919 or find After Dark Custom Designs on Facebook to place your order today. New England weather is unpredictable, and when the power goes out, you'll need a backup plan. That's why you should call Bushy's Generator Sales and Service in Springfield and Brookfield, Vermont. Bushy's is your source for home standby generators, and they are the number one Briggs & Stratton dealer in the state of Vermont. From sales and installation to service and maintenance on all makes and models of generators from 10 kilowatts to 200. And if you order a home standby generator from Bushy's between now and the Milk Bowl in October, mention that you heard this ad on Uncommon Deeds and receive a $500 discount. Bushy's Generator Sales and Service covers all of Vermont and New Hampshire, as well as Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York. Give them a call at 802-591-1903 or visit their Facebook page or Bushy'sGenerator.com. Bushy's Generator Sales and Service of Springfield and Brookfield, Vermont. We keep your power on. Barry Tile and Morrison Clark Incorporated have got you covered, literally. They're your number one stop in central Vermont for all types of flooring, whether it's tile, carpet, hardwood, or any other type of flooring, indoor or outdoor, for your home or your business. Barry Tile staff are qualified installers who can offer you real-world flooring experience and knowledge that you don't always find in the big chain stores. But you don't need our endorsement. They've been family-owned and operated since 1972, which means they're celebrating 50 years in business in 2022, and that stands for itself. And hey, not only are they great at what they do, they're racers too. You got it, man. Check out Barry Tile's Facebook page to see some examples of their incredible work. You can call them the old-fashioned way, 802-476-0912, or just stop into the showroom, 889 South Barry Road in Barry, Vermont. And make sure that you tell them that the guys at Uncommon Deeds sent you. Thanks to all our sponsors who help us bring this show to you for free every single week. Now, back to our show. Time for our Barry Tile quick hitters, and then we'll let you go. And thank you for sitting in a chair for an hour with <laughs> us in a neck brace. Uh, first up, who did you learn the most from just by racing on the track with? AP, Adam Pearson. Without a doubt. Learned everything that I bring to the steering wheel. I really do. We used to talk at hotels, running the midget deal, and then I used to go over his trailer. We raced against the modified and just talk. And then when he started racing for Adam Gage, used to go to the races with him when I was able to and just chat. And we used to compare our thoughts and notes together and just become better. Josh, what's the dumbest thing you ever did in a race car? Dumbest thing? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. That's a good one. Uh, semi feature a couple of years ago, Gary Siemens. And I drove it in way too hard in turn one and two and jumped over his right rear and backed the car in the backstretch wall and had to reclip it at the track. At the saying, track? Yeah. We cut it off and somebody had some, I think Ryan Avery had some welders. We welded it back on, didn't have a deck lid, didn't have a hood. Or our roof didn't have rear. I got a picture of it. I'll send it to you sometime. But yeah, I didn't have nothing. We had to like undo the fuel cell, lift it up, and weld the chassis back, the rear clip back to the chassis because I hit the wall so hard that night. Dumbest thing I ever done. Have to track <laughs> for sure. Well, now 
what what was it a driver error oh yeah car? big time oh yeah <laughs> i drove it in way too deep i was like because i wanted to get transfer spot to kind of get closer to start up in the feature and it's over i terribly did it it was bad <laughs> really bad at the track that's pretty good yeah yeah it was like that. pretty crazy <laughs> what's the best racing game ever high racing without a doubt most realistic and competitively it's getting really big now because a bunch of people building setups and stuff so getting harder but i'm helped out by a good friend of mine so he builds setups for iris and so he helps me out quite a bit but yeah this is iris is more realistic competitive and real life thing you can get to on it because i played artifact i've done stuff on consoles but Iris is pretty much where it's at, really, these days. Well, the correct answer is NASCAR Dirt to Daytona on PlayStation 2. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, when I was, I remember that. I used to play that all the time. It was crazy. Actually, I'm waiting for the new World of Outlaws come on Xbox the 27th. I'm going to buy that and play that. Yeah. So, since you mentioned it, does, and you're sitting in kind of your rig there, does iRacing at least kind of give you a little bit in your mind? Like, if you cannot race again, you'll still at least have that? It does. I've been doing it this week. It really does. So I got a pretty decent pedal situation. They're, like, all hydraulic and stuff and force feedback steering wheel and a shifter and just that. So that kind of – I used to do this yet. During the winter, keep up on my racing reactions and stuff like that. So, I think it does and will help me if I don't ever race again because I'll have this. That's what it comes down to. Hydraulic pedals, really? Yeah, they're all. So uh, I mean, it feels real. Then they're all. You can change your springs and adjust your brake power, your throttle power. Huh. How it pushes and releases. Yeah, it's pretty. And I got a forty-nine inch screen. <laughs> my wife bought me <laughs> oh, yeah. oh my god yeah pretty much i'm loaded up <laughs> but that's pretty good something i love to do so when i'm not yeah. racing or working which i haven't been doing much of lately so well yeah. i i think that everybody will join us in wishing that you get back into a race car um safely and soon but that, yeah. if you don't, you can make some money iRacing. Yeah, I'll I'll start a streaming page and I'll just stream my races. There you go. And that's how it will be if I can. Sign can't. us up. Let us know when you need the Uncommon Deeds 200. We'll sponsor it. Definitely, yeah. You'll have to do that. I'll put it on my car. There we go. All right. Thanks again to Josh Sun. Great story. And like we said at the beginning of the show and at the end of this interview, hope nothing but the best for him. And hopefully he gets to make that decision on what's next for him. And if not, hopefully he is succinct and happy with what he's done. And I think he is. Yeah. Like I said, he's had a wicked career. I don't know of any other drivers in any of the research that I've done that have claimed 32 wins in a single year. I can't, I can't think of anybody. 
25, 26, 27, somewhere in there, but that's an insane amount of feature wins. The most races I ever competed in in a year was 33, and he won 32 races in a year. Wow, that is impressive. So are you saying you did not win all those races you were in? Yeah, I'm saying exactly that thing. Uh, yep. That's okay, buddy. Yeah, thanks. Hey, speaking of some of our guests, uh, what was it David Greenslet went down the Hudson just hunting those points, looking for that national championship and took home the W. They're waiting on NASCAR to release the final standings, which probably come out today, Tuesday, as you're hearing this. Um, so, yeah, that was the last points weekend. And, yeah, man, if if all is well, then uh, Greenslit will end up as the national champion. You know what? I'm going to check this right now and see where he's at. Well, you do that. Well, he was he's he was two points behind Tim DeVos or DeVos, however you say it, from Berlin, Michigan, coming into the weekend. I don't know how Tim DeVos or DeVos did, but David Greenslit did what he needed to do and started out back and won a full field race and got the maximum points. So that's uh, nothing else he can do. Well, you're tinkering looking to see if that's updated or a reminder follow us on all the socials uncommon deeds on twitter and facebook uncommon deeds podcast on the instagram like the i said instagram like i said for any media requests or you're interested in becoming a part of the uncommon media family you can email uncommonmediavt at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe. Leave us that five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Helps us with the algorithms. And that's about it. That's the whole spiel for today. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Be back next week. And like Justin said, Hoping to do a Devil's Bowl championship extravaganza next week. And then come see us. Live show. Yes. Milk Bowl Saturday. Give or take around 530 in the turn three pavilion. Yeah. Looking at the schedule, um, or at least the information that they've put out about the Milk Bowl, they're planning on triple 50 qualifiers on Saturday. So... It'll be a bit later of a day than than it has been in years past if they do those 350 lap races rather than two. So 530 is about right, I think. Either way, after... If you're there, you're going to know. After yeah. the final open practice, yeah. when you no longer hear any cars running, it will be our mouths running away. Nice. Hopefully not. I'm really hopeful that our guests are just going to start bantering and I'm just going to sit back, relax, and enjoy the show like everybody else. The best possible scenario is that we don't say anything. Just let them go. But you'll have to come to find out. Or you'll have to wait to hear it on the podcast, but then 
you're those people and I'm sure everyone in your life has already been there and listened and they're going to try to tell you you and you're going to no, no, I haven't uh, no spoilers. You at the milk bowl. Yeah. You don't want to be that person. You don't, you don't. And then after you enjoy it live, you can recant the stories and listen again on the podcast. There you go. And then if you didn't see it in person, but you heard it on the podcast, you then get to go back after that and watch it on YouTube to see the full facial expressions as they're intended. In perpetuity. I love it. That is just your full week of entertainment, friends. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. This has been the Uncommon Deeds podcast, a production of Uncommon Media.